This is Mindframe, a podcast of mind-bending science fiction. I am Dave Moten. I am the host of the show, the narrator, and the author of the Mindframe story. And with me, as always, is my producer extraordinaire, Brent Van Tassel, who is one of the co-founders of uh, the Podbelly Network, which you can visit on podbelly.com to find information on how to podcast as well as a great directory of other podcasts that you can listen to. We'll say a little bit more about that at the end of the show. Um, we want to say for the first time that our uh, official uh, prime sponsor is El Yucateco Hot Sauce. That's E-L-Y-U-C-A-T-E-C-O, El Yucateco Hot Sauce. Best hot sauce in the business. Um, if Brent's mic was live, we might have to have an argument about whether the triple X or the black is the better flavor. But there are plenty of flavors to, to choose from. Um, if you like hot sauce and you want the flavor more than just the heat, then El Yucateco is, is what you want to be about. Um, also, we always want to remind you that if you're listening to our regular weekly chapter episodes, you're kind of only listening to half of the story. We do these, and as you saw in the very beginning of, of Mindframe, we also do our sit-downs every single week, where myself and Brent and Zach sit down, um, sip a little whiskey, and uh, talk shop about the events of this week's uh, chapter. So we talk about twists and turns, mysteries that are solved, mysteries that are new, uh, writing techniques, uh, writing style, all sorts of things. Um, they last a, a good chunk of time. We have a lot of laughs, so you can get that if you go to patreon.com slash mindframe podcast. Um, there are other levels as well that give you other benefits and tchotchkes, so consider looking at patreon.com. So this week we hit chapter 14, and in chapter 14 we revisit Marcellus Ball um, at the theater. Where we last left, he was um, torn between what to do about the fact that he uh, was falling for Desi and he didn't know how to, to move on her. And in this chapter, we find him as things change a little bit in the theater. And uh, we'll see what those changes are and what he decides here in a moment. So thank you for listening and enjoy chapter 14. Chapter 14, Marcellus Ball, circa 1991. Marcellus twisted his dreads into a ponytail, using one of his own locks as a tie, and walked back to the office. The space was a small loft that sat above the costume shop. Only Marcellus and his boss, the director, owner, producer, matron of the theater on Echo Street, Katsumi Oshiro, had a key. Katsumi was already up there, talking on a cordless phone she recently got for the place. She bought it so she could wander the theater while she talked on her epic phone calls to New York City. Soon upon unboxing, she realized the dense masonry of the theater blocked the signals and the wireless range was limited to pretty much the office itself and maybe a walk downstairs through the rows of costume racks, mannequins, sewing stations, and laundry machines. The costume shop smelled like old curtains, cheap laundry detergent, foundation, and sweat. It was the second largest room in the building, a span of racks and shelves two stories high, packed with jackets and shoes and wigs and hat boxes. Marcellus always felt that this shop was instrumental for a theater, the sets in the dressing rooms and the light booth were important for the illusions Kat wanted to generate as director, but nothing transformed someone more than a costume. Vintage clothes, smart fedoras, bell-bottoms, and evening gowns. These were the main ingredients to the fabrication of a new reality more than any of the rest of it. Then again, it may have just felt that way since Marcellus couldn't sew. 
The Miracles of the Unknown Skill Set. He walked up the bare lumber stairs for the loft, an add-on to maximize the once-empty space hovering above the costume shop. He rapped on the door twice and helped himself in. Kat ended her phone call with a series of pauses and a jotting of notes. Her age was difficult to ascertain, and she could be a real hard-ass when it came to a production, but she had a sense of humor hidden down deep, one that would only come out with Marcellus and sometimes Dale, the set designer, deep in the night when the darkness of the theater surrounded a late practice and all sensible people were home in bed. Katsumi worked hard and expected the same from others. Glengarry Glen Ross, she said to Marcellus. Glengarry Glen Ross will launch in 30 days, and the children's hour needs to be added to the rehearsal schedule. The budget and concept for Glengarry are all right here, she said, holding a large Kinko's box that sagged with details. Set up a meeting with the heads in two days for some spitballing. We need to post a major casting call. I'm hoping to pull a few of our actors from Echo Street and get them to my startup theater back in New York so there will be vacancies. Marcellus knew she was here to announce a new play and rename the theater, but he was hoping she'd finally put Pirates of Penzance on the docket. Mamet was fine, though. Had potential. Their theater was a unique acting space, one of constant change. Kat was from a wealthy family and kept her portfolio expanding through peculiar real estate investments, a strange shell game of small properties in third-world countries that somehow made money. But she loved the arts. Katsumi Oshiro was rich, upwards of a hundred million, the rumors said, and she wanted to create a theater experience unlike any other, so she paid a lot of money, and lost a lot of money, to keep Echo Street constantly changing. She would have her troupe of actors rehearse several plays regularly in the black box theater behind the main stage. Sometimes they would be rehearsing four or five shows simultaneously back there. The costumes would be ready and the concepts fully envisioned. Then, with only a week's notice, she would finally tell them which one was going to launch. She gave them just enough time to hang the lights, build the sets, and work on the final blocking. It was exciting for everyone involved, and the community as well. Since many of the shows ran a handful of times, and some, like last night's Hamlet, ran only once, the house was always packed with people eager to see a show that none of their friends may get a chance to see even a week later. Sometimes a show would get a proper run and go for a few months, but that was the exception, so opening night was always the thing. Theater buffs flew from around the world to see an Oshiro production on opening night. A dress rehearsal and a couple of weekends was the most anyone could rely on from the theater on Echo Street. This made Marcellus's job very challenging, very time-consuming, and very fun. Even a horrible play could be endured for a weekend. The rotation cost Kat a fortune, but she gladly paid it. The most expensive aspect was always replacing the signage of the theater and rebranding it, which she did fully, reinventing not just the stage show, but the theater itself. That'll be a good show, Marcellus said of Glengarry. What's the basic concept? Straightforward, normal period. Nothing too crazy, just a solid, simple performance. Slight gender juxtaposition so it's not such a sausage fest. I want it to be about the actors this time, not the set or the costumes. New name for Echo Street? We are tentatively the Callisto Theater. I like it. Katsumi nodded and smiled what Marcellus knew was her politically correct smile. She knew he liked it, the smile said, because Callisto was a good name, but she didn't want to be a snob about it, so a smile. Then she said, Great job last night, Marcellus. Perfect job. Well, except for the light board taking a shit in the middle of Act 3, 
What now? Kat looked up from her notes and day planner for the first time. Her hair was long, and she always dressed in a business suit with a bright scarf twirled around her neck. She took the scarf off and set it on her desk. The computer froze, and the fade didn't happen. We switched to manual and ran a couple of cues by hand while we rebooted the computer and got it lined back up with where we were in the play. Are you joking me? Tell me you're fucking joking me. Do you know how much I paid for that computerized monstrosity? It was fine, Cat. Aside from the glitch, it was a breeze. I'm glad we have it. I think maybe it was on for too long or something. We never turned it off through dress for fear we'd lose all the programming and have to start the light design from scratch. The thing ran for a couple of weeks on end. It was Dale just being paranoid about any new thing allowed into his theater. His theater, she asked, and Marcellus flushed at the poor choice of wording he had just used. Run some practices on it before we get into Glengarry, and reboot it a bunch just to make sure that doesn't happen again. I won't have ghosts in the machine in my theater, Kat said with a smile that said she was joking about it being her theater instead of Dale's. But she wasn't. Not even a little. Dale's going to push back and be distrustful of the tech, but I think that's a good idea. Will you kindly remind Dale that I, in fact, sign his paychecks? He knows, Cat. Just Dale being Dale. He can obsess with his designs, especially lighting. Well, good on you for pulling that off in the middle of the production. I never would have noticed. Smart thinking. Last night was a decisive success. I do what I can. Marcellus thought about how much work this change was going to be, and wondered if he'd have a chance to spend any real time with Desi before she left for New York. He doubted it, and Kat misread his apprehension. She smiled and touched his hand and said, I know everyone was planning on having a cast party after tonight's performance, but since there won't be a tonight's performance, I put extra money in the party fund. Let them pop some corks. We'll strike Castle Elsinore on Monday. I transferred a bonus to the main bank account for you as well. I don't know what we'd do without you, Marcellus. You are the key to this whole operation. Barca came in from the rain, holding a bulging white plastic bag. The image on the bag, which was of a bowl with three jagged lines of steam rising from it, all below two crossed chopsticks, told Marcellus they were eating teriyaki prints for dinner. The thought made his stomach flip with excitement. He didn't realize how hungry he was. My knight in shining armor, Marcellus said, laying a cut two-by-four on each side of the blueprints for the Glengarry set build to keep it from rolling back up on itself. Your knight and soggy Armani, Barca said, setting the food next to the sink and taking off the exquisite raincoat he got at an Armani outlet out of town. Barca picked up his walkie and called into it. Honey, I made dinner. Irwin came on the line. Let me put on some music and I'll be right down. What'd we get? Does it matter? You eat everything, Barca said. Yes, as a matter of fact, it does matter. I need to select our dinner music wisely. I pair it to the meals like a fine wine. Teriyaki Prince, Barca said. As usual, it was just Irwin, Barca, and Marcellus. They were the three people typically on hand every day. The others came and went as sets needed building or to attend rehearsals. Rotations of cast and crew on any given day was based upon various specialties. But Marcellus and his two attendants were here every day, hardwired into Echo Street. The Callisto Theater, Marcellus reminded himself now. Cat would get touchy if someone forgot to call it by its new name. Music boomed in from the main theater's sound system. It was the distinct, aggressive beat of Public Enemy. Irwin liked rap music, but too much of the new stuff was macho and misogynistic. Public Enemy wanted racial equality and supported their sisters as much as their brothers. Irwin liked that sentiment. 
He first queued up what Barca called That Arizona One, a song about the state of Arizona refusing to celebrate Martin Luther King Day as a recently added federal holiday. Marcellus took the styrofoam bowls out of the bag. There were four of them, the lid saying beef, chicks, or veg in a black grease pen, depending on the content. Marcellus took the chicks, handed Barca the veg, and left the two beefs for Irwin. He realized he should have the veggie, but the thought felt like it came from some other him, an imprisoned version who couldn't eat chicken of all things. He took a greasy envelope made out of stapled wax paper and removed a few egg rolls, got out chopsticks and chili sauce in a small plastic cup, and got two Diet Cokes and a Mountain Dew out of the fridge. Oh God, this music, Barca protested. Do we have to listen to this? Irwin replied as he entered the shop and headed for his two beef bowls. You refuse to give it a chance. This happens to be really good music, important music. It's rooted in jazz and funk and rock and roll. It has a very strong, positive black voice. Yeah, yeah, it's especially helpful if I want to go out and kill a nigga. They actually don't endorse that word, Marcellus said. There's a whole song about it. Yeah, that's N.W.A. who wants to kill a nigga, Irwin said, saying nigga silently, since he was Caucasian. P.E. wants you to kill Whitey. The white devil, Marcellus added with a swift nod, cheek bulging with egg roll. Oh, well, that's much better, as long as our murderous rage is focused toward the proper race. You Americans are baffling and frightening. Plus, Chuck D is hot, Irwin said. Gross, Marcellus said, stretching the word to multiple syllables. What? Irwin asked, feigning innocence. They ate and listened to the music for a while. The smell of rain still lingered in the air, and Marcellus opened the door and drove a wooden wedge under it to keep it open. The rejuvenating scent of wet cement filled the set shop, and the breeze was cool. You two going to the party tonight? Marcellus asked, either of them. We are. We'll go see a movie and then come by after. What are you going to see? Marcellus asked. The two spoke in unison, Barca saying, The Fisher King, and Irwin saying, The New Nightmare on Elm Street. They looked at each other, and each raised their eyebrows. Marcellus laughed. Stick with The Fisher King, much better movie. He hadn't seen Freddy's Dead yet, but The Fisher King was a great film, an instant classic. And you, I presume, are going on a date with the lovely Miss Sophie Arnaz before she leaves town? Or are your dates limited to her eating your breakfast sandwiches, rubbing her boobs in your face, and giggling with inside jokes while you sit there like a big fat dope? Barca asked. Please, she does not see me like that. Please, she so does see you like that. She was all over you this morning, Irwin said. She looked at you like you were a war hero. What do you call her, Barca asked. I call her Desi, she calls me Lucy, Marcellus said. Then, to defend against Barca rolling his eyes, continued with, It's nothing. It's an old joke between us. From back in college. Old jokes, Barker said. You two are in love. The word was strung out sing-song as he shook his butt to it. Let your two gay friends give you a piece of straight advice, Marcellus. She is hot. You are dumb. Call her phone. She is moving, Marcellus said. Did you happen to see her with deep red lipstick and that glorious vintage 40s hair when she was on stage last night? That dress? Those curves? It almost made me get hard, Barca said. Irwin broke into song. When I'm alone in my room, sometimes I stare at the wall, and in the back of my mind I hear my conscience call, telling me I need a girl who's sweet as a dove. For the first time in my life, I see I need love. Barca and Irwin hit the chorus together repeating LL Cool J's chorus, I Need Love, three times, 
until Marcellus was forced to throw packets of soy sauce at each one of them. She is pretty hot, Marcellus finally said, hoping he'd go through and give her a call. The rain continued to fall, harder now, as Marcellus read over the production and design notes again. The clouds held their light as long as possible, but only a buried gray glimmer was still up there making it through. He loved the rain, and here it was, as regular as trash trucks. A good hard downpour like this one was like a song from his youth. Long summer days, sitting on his porch with his mama, shucking peas as the rains came in. He opened up the loading dock doors like he always did, to let the sound and the smell and the wet inside. After, moving all the set pieces and power tools a good distance back so Dale wouldn't be pissed about splatters in the morning. He heard the tick of the coffee maker as it suddenly drew more power and ignited its heating plate again. The coffee was probably burned past recognizing the taste, but he had decided on a long night after Erwin and Barco were let go for the party in the movie. Marcellus wasn't in a partying mood. After dinner with the boys and after seeing Desi that morning, he had become melancholy. The jibes by his two assistants, though designed to make him fall into her arms, took Marcellus down a different emotional path. He withdrew to a place full of regrets. Women, mostly. Girls, actually, when he was younger, back in high school and at the academy. Females who he longed for but was too shy to make a move on. He was black, a deep, blue-skinned, flat-nosed black, his mama used to joke, in a predominantly white part of the country. He was skinny as a piece of stray lumber sitting in the set shop, and he was shy and had bad acne when he was younger. Plus over, he was a theater nerd. Nobody wanted him. Or at least, that was his perception of it. As he'd gotten older, Marcellus had spoken with many of his younger crushes, only to find out the feelings were often mutual. The reason Marcellus felt awkward around them was that they were awkward around him, and the spiral continued. The love life of his youth was like a bad will-they-won't-they they situation comedy. He'd found renewed confidence in his late 20s here at the theater, in the arms of many a willing actress. He was no longer shy, was described as charismatic and charming and handsome, but in his heart, he was always that skinny nerd and ever would be. And in his heart, he realized he never had a crush on Desi. Nothing so mundane. He was only ever in love with her. Desi. Her long legs that he'd seen so many times in short shorts or yoga pants during rehearsals. The times she'd have to do a quick change in the wings behind the proscenium just off stage, and he'd hold up a tarp so nobody could see her. She'd get wobbly and need him to support her, flashing a breast or a thigh. She'd grin as she steadied. He'd turn away, blood and hormones flushing his system. Her fair skin was set to an electric contrast by her storm black hair and eyes a sharp enough blue to draw blood. She had a mole above her lip, an actual beauty mark, and she didn't wear her glasses anymore, which seemed a pity. And seeing her this afternoon, hearing her say she was leaving him, it filled Marcellus with longing, emptied his confidence into a dry trough, and made him a school nerd all over again. His logical mind would tell him he was kind of a catch these days, he ran one of the most popular avant-garde theaters in the world. He was at its epicenter and lived in the hippest part of downtown in the hippest city in the nation. He was funny. He had a well-paying job, health benefits, a new car, which he never drove, and he should call her car phone, run to her apartment, wet from rain, profess his dying love like in all the not-so-great romantic comedies he'd been forced to watch 
most often with Desi, back in her dorm room. He even wondered if that meant something those years back, watching all those romantic comedies together. But his empty heart would wick that confidence away like the cement floor of the theater would wick away your body heat. All that remained was a late night of Glengarry prep, a skipped rap party, and doubt. Why bother, his heart insisted. She's leaving in a few days. You fucked up yet again, Marcellus. You should have done this a year ago before she decided to move. He filled his coffee mug and looked up the number for her car phone in his address book. The book felt like a cold bird, hard and dead, but once full of life and hope and song. Marcellus slid open the one drawer to his desk, threw the address book to the very back of it, took a drink of old bitter coffee and slammed the drawer shut. He sat and looked at Kat's sketches of costumes for the upcoming show. Good stuff here, not like the bad Hamlet Nazi regime. It was simple and fresh and reflected the tone and gravitas of the play's content. At least the rain was here for company, both physical and empathic. A steady thrum, heavy as a heartbeat, and in the distance, a clicking. It was faint at first, then growing louder. Click, click, click. A leak somewhere in the theater? That could be disastrous. It happened a season ago as well and almost ruined some set paintings. This drip was a crisp sound, though, so it must have been hitting what? Metal? It drew closer, louder, and when Marcellus stood to investigate, he realized it wasn't water at all. It was a solid thing, the tapping of heels on wet concrete. He spun on his stool, and there, in front of the loading doors, was Desi. She said, Why do you make it so cold and wet in here? It could be a paradise! She was soaked through her coat, and her long hair splayed against her back like a wet leaf. Her mascara ran down her face and spread out around her eyes, somehow making the blue even more attractive and gothic. She added, Were you really going to let me go to New York? Were you really going to let me stop you? No, you damn fool, I was going to take you with me. She trembled from the cold of the water, and so too did Marcellus, once he ran forward and embraced her in the rain. The shaking of her shoulders and hips grew more relaxed, fluid like the rain. And she shared her trembling body with Marcellus, shared it as they'd both wanted to since they first met years ago. Okay, that's it for chapter 14. I know we cut it off right when it's getting steamy, but you'll have to wait five more chapters to see what happens next. Um, as always, I want to remind you that if you go to mindframepodcast.com, you can uh, check out our merch store. We sell everything from socks to t-shirts to coffee mugs. Um, if you like the story, um, pick up something at the shop. It both supports us and helps you spread the word. Um, I especially recommend a coffee mug because if we're still all in a pandemic and you're working from home, at least everyone can see it on your Zoom calls. Um, but you can also find out my other book, uh, 181 Pine, which is the first book of my six paradigm series. And you can find the books of the host for the sit down, Zach Smith. He has several works of fiction on the, the store as well. Um, you can go to podbelly.com and you can find a lot of really good podcasts that you can listen to varying in topic, varying in intensity and length and all sorts of things. Um, one that is another piece of serialized fiction is the breakers podcast. It's a really great story. Uh, you should definitely check that one out and download it. Uh, it's already concluded so you can binge the entire story, um, and find out what happens. 
And then there's also Changing Hearts and Minds. So go to podbelly.com, find those on the directory and others that might tickle your fancy. Also, you might want to check out Brewing the 99, which is the podcast that our partner in crime from our other podcast, Brad Taylor, does, which is a podcast about Magic the Gathering. And you can also check us out on the Sofa King podcast, which is a not safe for work comedy podcast where we research about various topics and then do a dig on them for an hour or hour and a half. Um, On social media, you can find us on Facebook at Mindframe Podcast. On Instagram, we are The Mindframe Podcast. On Twitter, we are the Mindframe Pod, and on Reddit, we are r slash Mindframe Podcast. That's it for another week. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and as always, remember, the Lariat is closing. <laughs>